Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast. Featuring leadership and team building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now your host, international speaker and best-selling author, Frank Viscuso. Dr. Dennis O'Neill, retired deputy chief from Jersey City, former deputy fire administrator. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Frank, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm very happy to have you on. And we had a conversation a couple of days ago. And, uh, yeah, I'm very impressed with your career and everything you've accomplished. But if you don't mind, for our viewers, just introduce yourself and maybe talk about your journey into the fire service. Um, I, probably the most interesting thing was that I wasn't interested in being a firefighter. My dad was a firefighter in Jersey City, and uh, he came home. I was home from the Army. I was doing different things. I was, as you know, shaping, driving trailers, tractor trailers, uh, working on the docks over in New York City and in, in Newark. And um, he had the application for the fire department. And, you know, he said, here you go, fill this out. And, of course, it laid on the kitchen table, and I didn't fill it out. And, you know, he kept bugging me to fill it out. And finally, he filled it out. He said, here, sign this. I signed it. He mailed it in, and um, I took the test. Now, there were probably five or six of my friends at that time, the police and fire department, had the test on the same day. And um, it was five or six of us that went out to Newark, uh, we took the exam. Five of them failed. I passed. And um, as you well know, in New Jersey, for entrance only, uh, there's veterans preference. And uh, because I was a veteran, I went to the you know, number two or three, three number three. And um, I got on the fire department. But at that time, I was, af I was afraid to go up a step, step ladder. I was afraid of heights. And um, eventually was assigned to a ladder company. So my attitude about heights quickly changed. Uh, I was sent to a pretty busy ladder company. But uh, when I got there, there were a bunch of guys, all Vietnam veterans who were going to school to our alma mater, uh, Jersey City. And I was still driving trucks part time. And um, I realized that the GI Bill was a much better deal than driving trucks. <laughs> So I uh, hung out with the smart kids and uh, went to school, and and that's how uh, I started that journey. And as you well know, in New Jersey, our promotional examination process for promotion is uh, competitive testing. And because you were going to school, you knew how to take tests, you knew how to study. So I did well and kind of went up through the ranks. And when I retired, I was acting chief in Jersey City. You mentioned that you had a fear of heights, and this is something that I talk to firefighters about quite often, is even if you have a fear of heights, which a lot of people in the fire service do, that doesn't mean you won't be a great firefighter. But how did you overcome it? Was it just climbing the ladder regularly at work? Yeah, um, climbing the ladder regularly in the training academy, we were not allowed to use stairs. So we had to climb in 
all the windows on ladders. So that's how that all started. And if, you know, after a while you get used to it, you realize that the later the ladders are stable, stable, and then the training that you go through in addition to that, you know, and you get comfortable with it. Yeah, I think that's a lot of life in general. Everything that you're you want to accomplish is going to be uncomfortable at some point until you get comfortable doing it. We talk to our firefighters about that a lot, creating muscle memory and training to the point where it becomes the norm. But through yeah. their journey in the fire service, uh, yeah, I mean, you've reached the level of deputy chief. And like you said, you were acting chief at one point. Were you actively looking for ways to develop your leadership skills? Was it happening naturally from on-the-job training, from mentoring, from other firefighters, from reading? What was your process to develop yourself? There were a couple that I, I did use, Frank. Um, one of them, and I, I can't tell you why this occurred in my life, but even, even in grammar school, there were popular kids who were quote leaders, and I don't want to call them leaders, they were popular, but I couldn't understand what it was about them that other people followed. Why were people following them? What was it about them? And, uh, and then when I got into high school, I went to a high school over in New York City, and um, it was the same thing. And then, of course, in the Army, you know, leadership is pretty well defined, and and um, they sent me to a uh, a leadership school for three weeks uh, after I got out of basic training. And, you know, you learn a lot there. When I get into the fire department, there was really two schools. There was the school of the classic ways of learning um, through school. And then there were the informal ways of learning. And that's when I, I divided it into to the people that were leaders not because of their rank, but because of their something about them. And then where I learned the most was from people who were poor leaders, who made mistakes that they wouldn't acknowledge. I learned from, actually, I learned more from the people who did things wrong than I learned from the people who did things right. That's such a great point, because with my conversations with people, a lot of people will talk to me about, well, I have this situation at work where my boss doesn't allow me to do this or that, or he comes down on us or she comes down on us for this or that. And I try to tell them, remember the way you feel. So when you reach that level or that position, you're not doing that to other people. I even had this conversation with my nine-year-old not too long ago, where I said to him, you know how it feels when kids don't include you? At, on the playground, yeah, I said, don't ever make other people feel that way. Because when you're that person, if you're going to bully and say, you can't play with us, and uh, you're making them feel the way you feel right now. So always remember the way people make you feel so you know the things you could do to get the most out of people. Uh, and I'll actually share this with you. I just saved this on my phone before this conversation. Thought of the day. A person who feels appreciated will always do more than expected. Do you agree that with that thought process as a leader? I do. And um, Maya Angelou, I don't know how many fire chiefs you know that are quoting poets, but Maya Angelou said, they may not remember what you did and they may not remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And um, 
I've made mistakes uh, doing that. And they actually became lifelong lessons to me, things that I said to myself, I will never, ever do that again. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the mistakes that I saw, and this isn't one I did, but this is one I saw, where uh, superior officers in the fire department would dress people down in public, you know, out in front of a fire or something like that. And boy, I'll tell you, if you want to turn somebody off, if you want to make a lifelong memory, um, enemy, if you want to really, really destroy morale, do that. Right. We talk about that praise in public, but criticize in private. So Mm -hmm. not even you don't have to criticize. You just have to find out what were they thinking when they did that? What was Mm -hmm. the motivation behind it? You know, I pulled him aside and said, look, I saw you do this. Let me understand what you did and why you did it. And if it sounded reasonable, I'd say, look, okay, next time, think of it this way. This is what I'm seeing. But you don't really have to be a critic. Discipline is really comes from the word disciple, which means you're, you're kind of training people. You're, you want to bring them up. You want to help them get better. It's not a situation where, you're lauding your authority or your power over them to uh, to embarrass them or to to excoriate them for what they did. I like that. I like how you, you talked about how, you know, why did it make sense for you to do that at that time? Because I've said this before. I'm the absolute best incident commander you will ever meet in your life 24 hours after the fire. Right. Because that's when I know what I know yep. what I was facing. I know what I did wrong. I. And I'm my own worst critic. Yeah. So sure. Yeah, take that into consideration with everybody else. Like, why did it make sense at that time to take that action? Because based on the limited information they had, it might have been the right choice. Exactly. You don't know what information they had. You don't know what conditions they were working under. Right. So Jersey City Fire Department, you rise to the rank of deputy chief before becoming acting chief, you know, you have 620 firefighters and officers roughly. Yeah. Let's talk about being a deputy chief in Jersey city. Tell our listeners that may not know about, about Jersey city, what your community demographics are like. Okay. Um, Jersey city is a typical old Eastern waterfront city. Are across the river neighbor is New York City. If you look at the geography of the world and you fly over Jersey City in a helicopter, I tell people that if you look down on the Statue of Liberty, you realize that the Statue of Liberty is actually in Jersey City. Don't believe those lying New Yorkers. Okay, Ellis Island is in Jersey City. And um, so we had the typical old inner city tenements. Um, it began to get high rise building as I, as I went up uh, through the ranks in the downtown section of the city. Uh, when you were deputy chief, you were citywide. We had 20, I think it was 28 companies, um, 18 or nine, 18 engine companies, 11, no, it's 10 ladder companies. There was a rescue. Um, and a typical response would be uh, three engines and a ladder. I'm sorry, three engines and two ladders and a rescue on a, work, a report of a working fire. 
if it was a report of a school fire, it was uh, four and three ladders. And if it was a report of a hospital fire or nursing home, you got four engines and four ladder companies. Had a good water supply system, um, good training, and um, a very strong union. Two very, actually three very strong unions, uh, IAFF locals, good union presidents who most for the most part willing to work with you on issues. We understood each other sometimes. They had to take a position and I had to take a position. Um, but it was never there was never any animosity or I mean we knew each other. So it was just look, we gotta work this out. The population is about um two seventy, two hundred and seventy thousand thereabouts. Um it's was at one time, I'm pretty sure that it still is, listed as one of the most diverse cities in the country. And um, they had, I think, well over 80 different English as a second language programs in the school system. And um, so it was, um, it was an interesting place to work. Um, when I went into the fire department and we didn't do medical services at all, uh, even right up until the time I left. There were plenty of fires. Um, just about every day, uh, you were going to fires. By the time you hit battalion chief, you were going all the time. Deputy chief, you were going all the time. And interestingly, you could go to anything. You had the city chemical fire with 400 different types of chemicals. You've had in 93, the World Trade Center bombing, you guys responded to that. So I, on any given day in Jersey City, you could see anything. It was, and it was, you learned a lot. Um, we had waterfront, we had the Holland Tunnel, we had a subway system, we had high rise, hazmat, um, you name it, tenements, um, all different kinds of buildings. And you learned a lot. Yeah, I bet. And some of it was learning that day. For the <laughs> Unfortunately. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I want to talk about something that you and I have spoke about before, and I think this can help some people, which is the uh, 1993 line of duty death. You were an incident commander at that incident. The reason that I want to talk about it is we just had a couple LODDs um, just this past week. And I often think as an incident commander, had I ever been in that situation, what it would have been like and how I how I could have processed that. So I'm sure we have people that listen to this podcast that have been in a situation like you have. Like you said to me, like you gave that firefighter the order. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened on that day and and how you were able to get through it. Um, Frank, it's obviously it's a scar on your soul for the rest of your life. Uh, the anniversary of Carlos Negron's death was March 20th. It was in 1993, so it was 28 years ago, but it's as fresh in my mind this morning as it is as it was the day after uh, it happened. Um, just kind of set it up. It was about eight o'clock in the morning, which was change of shift in Jersey City. We had had a blizzard the day before. So firefighters were having a difficult time getting into work. Some, you know, 
it was just a crazy time trying to figure out who was on their way, who was going to be late. When um, I got in the vehicle, the chief's car, to take a ride up to a section of the city called the Heights, which was an old, well, they were all old, but the Heights section was notorious for narrow streets. And I wanted to travel the arterial streets up and down to see what was open and what side streets were blocked off that hadn't been plowed yet, just to see what kind of access problems or water problems they could possibly have. Having no idea what was going to happen in the next uh, few minutes, and an alarm of fire came in, and the building was reported mm, four or five blocks away from where I was. So as I pulled up, the first engine and the first ladder were there, but for the deputy chief to arrive that early in a working fire in Jersey City just didn't happen. You, you were never there, but I was. So um, the, a woman came out and she was in a nightgown and she was holding a baby and she didn't speak English at all. And she was speaking Spanish and between her pigeon Spanish and I'm sorry, her pigeon English and my pigeon Spanish, I figured out that her husband uh, was trapped on the, in the apartment. Uh, so it, it was apparent that the baby had uh, played with matches, probably set the mattress on fire. The husband tried to put the fire out, picked up the mattress, was going to drag it out and got trapped in the hallway with the mattress. And, and in Jersey City, that happened enough that you realize what was going on. So I sent the engine company up, and it was really the fire was taken off quite a bit. And I told one, the first ladder company to go up and vent the roof because it was attached on both sides, but it was over a liquor store. And as you know, coming from Hudson County, Frank, the liquor stores are pretty well armed. So what they would do is put steel plates over the roof scuttles and the uh, roof hatches so that burglars couldn't get in and steal the liquor. And I knew that. So I knew that they might have a problem. The second ladder came up, and now the engines are coming off, and guys, the officers know what to do. I didn't have to tell them what to do. And they um, started to line into the building to, to back up the first engine. And the second ladder came up to me and said, you know, what do you need? They, they were watching because it was – starting to look like it might backdraft. I said, get a ladder and start breaking those front windows. They went and got a ladder, but that's when I realized there were only two men on the apparatus because the others didn't get in because of the snow. I don't know what happened to the firefighters going off duty. I, I still don't know. But anyway, they were short. Off in the corner, um, off-duty firefighter Carlos Negron was at a bodega with his son. Carlos Jr., who was probably, I'm going to say, 13 or 14 years old. We're getting a cup of coffee. They were watching the fire. And I turned to him and said, Carlos, help them with this ladder. And he went over. Of course, he didn't have any gear on. He didn't have any boots on or anything. He was in the, And they dropped the ladder into the windows to vent them. And they broke the first set of windows. As they were pulling the ladder back, one of them, and I don't know which one, slipped in the snow, they pulled the ladder back, and they hit a 13,000-volt power line with the ladder. Now, I was standing in front of the building. The sparks started flying down. I, 
I didn't know what was going on. The ladder dropped. I saw them, two of them, kind of twitching and gurgling in the street. And now the firefighters saw what was going on. And I didn't know where the electric, I knew that it was an electric, but I didn't know where it was. I couldn't see just because of where I was. And they were going to start to do CPR on them. And I said, no, pull them away from the ladder. I didn't know if the ladder was still charged or so they got hooks and pulled them both away. But that engine company that was still in the building was now by themselves and they didn't realize it. And now the building's starting to now clear signs of upcoming backdraft. The smoke is going back into the building. It's puffing out the sides. It's spreading into the attached buildings. And the battalion chief still hadn't arrived. This was two or three minutes uh, into the fire that this all occurred. So I got on the radio and I called for medics. I called for a second alarm right away. And then I told central office, in two minutes, I want you to transmit the third alarm. I don't want that much apparatus on the street in this snow at the same time. I was just concerned of an accident or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we called for a second medic. I wanted them to take these two to different hospitals because they were, they were dead. Okay, they were purple. Uh, the CPR wasn't working. Um, the medics got there. Uh, they put them into to the two different ambulances. I said to take them to two, two different hospitals, and they did. And I, I don't know why, but the one firefighter, Walter Milney, who was actually the nephew of the first battalion chief that I worked for and the son of a police captain who I knew very well, um, who was dead. Okay, he, And all of a sudden, he sat up in the ambulance and he said, I know what happened. Um, Carlos got to the hospital and they were not able to resuscitate him. I'm going to say 20 years later, I was at a federal meeting and I met the medic that saved Walter's life, that, that brought him back. Um, he's now an attorney uh, in emergency management. I believe he's in Oregon now. But um, so that was that was pretty much it. I mean, the, the challenge and the lessons that I would pass along to to chief fire officers are, are these. First of all, um, you, the mistake that I made was that I didn't delegate the either the fire or the treatment of the firefighters to someone else. I couldn't because there's nobody there. Once the battalion chief showed up, I gave him the two firefighters to to take care of because I still had the fire. And and that's the challenge, trying to kind of keep control. And even though it's probably not intellectually possible to have that much piece of sense of what you need to do for some reason, dumb luck, I, I don't know what it was. I'm going to call it dumb luck. I did. And um, so... You, you can't do everything ordinarily under the incident command system. We ordinarily delegate, but this was 
just a weird set of circumstances. Um, and that was pretty much the lesson. Uh, Walter Milne spent, he lost a few fingers, he lost some toes. He spent at least a month, maybe a month and a half in the burn center in St. Barnabas, which you, you and I both know. Um, and then he went back on the job. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know if he came back to the job. I remember the story quite well, though. So you also shared a story about how on the day of the funeral you had received a call from a student of because you had a, a test prep um, company Edcon that you worked with and you had received the call from a student who wanted to appeal his test score can you talk a little bit about that sure um, actually um, I don't mean to correct you Frank but actually he was at the funeral and oh, okay. uh, his as you all know, um, when there's a firefighter funeral, usually the department, I don't know what term to call it, but the, the department that suffered the loss is on one side of the street and then all the visiting departments were on the other side of the street. And um, they went in for the funeral mass and then they left the, to go to the cemetery. And they had, you know, the crowds had began to broke up breakup. And this man named Lewis Sheets uh, came over to me and he said to me, you know, I know it's a bad time, but I'm, I want to appeal my test. And I think that these questions were keyed wrong. Would you help me with the appeal? I said, sure, Lewis. I said, look, this is a bad day for me. Um, do me a favor, type it up, fax it to me, and um, I'll take a look and see how I can help you out. That night, with the night after, time is kind of fade right now. Lewis was killed at a fire, as well. Uh, a um, chimney collapsed on him while he was fighting a fire, and um, so it was. Uh, it was. It was a pretty tough, um, pretty tough time. Yeah, and the reason I wanted you to bring that up is because I, and you know this, I travel throughout the country teaching and there's been a couple of times where there have been line of duty deaths that maybe happen a year two years three years after i had presented a class where the firefighter who lost their lives was actually in my training yeah and i always explain that in our job we inherit risk it's gonna you can do everything right and still have the worst possible outcome in our job. Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people don't realize that, which is why it's so important that you, number one, process that thought so you prepare so that you don't create any unnecessary risk. Because if we're not prepared, that's what can happen is we, we could start making these mistakes because we're not learning from other people's experience before us, which is why I'm thankful that you're willing to share your experience with us because this is valuable for a guy like me who became a deputy chief and in my own county i had these these incidents that i needed to learn from you know never forget means never forget but what happened to carlos's son have you ever seen him since i have actually um i kind of stayed in touch with the family it's a I don't, I don't know how to describe this, Frank, 
but it's a want to get in touch, want to put your arm around this kid, but you don't know how he feels about you because you're the guy that told his father to do this and the father died. Uh, so his, his son is a medic in Jersey City now. And um, whenever there's a, an event in Jersey City, usually we have a, a picnic once a year and I'll run up against, I'll run up across him and, and we'll talk. Uh, when his mom was still alive, uh, excuse me, we would talk and, and they expressed that they understood that it was an accident, that it wasn't my fault. Still, I, I don't know how to describe, it's really a dichotomy between wanting to intervene in the family's life because of what happened and wondering deep down inside that they resent you or any ill will. But the one advantage that I had was Carlos's brother, Frankie, was also on the job. And I stayed in touch with Frankie and I would track the family and, you know, donate to charities and things like that anonymously. Didn't want them to know anything. And and um, the way the um, legal things turned out, um, they did okay. I mean, it's, it's not a compensation, but it they were not uh, destitute. I understand. And I can kind of empathize with that challenge that you have of wanting to get closer and not knowing, because I can, I can pretty much tell you that I think I'd feel that same way if I was in that situation. Let me talk to you now about your post-Jersey City Fire Department career. You make the transition into U.S. Fire Administration. You were going to become the chief or likely going to become the chief at Jersey City, but uh, instead you decided to move on. So how did that transition happen? Um, well, it was a couple of things. One was um, a friend of mine called me up and, and asked me to apply for the job. And previous to my appointment, it was a political appointment by the president. Uh, this was the first time they were going to have a career federal employee, something called the senior executive, which is the highest rank you can be in the federal government with a permanent job. Everybody above you uh, is appointed by the president. So I applied, but I figured, you know, there's thousands of people are going to apply. Uh, they called me up and interviewed me. Uh, at the end of the interview, I said, look, uh, if you want everything to stay the same, do yourself a favor. Don't hire me. I'm probably just going to make you mad. Um, and I got on the plane and I went home and I said to my wife, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to get the job. But it was an interesting experience because I'd never interviewed for a job before. About three months later, they called me up and offered me the job. <clears throat> so now it was, uh, what do I do? And I knew that I'd never get the opportunity again. And everything I had done before this had led to you know, between school and experience, et cetera, it led to the point where, you know, you got this opportunity, should you take it? And it was a very uncomfortable situation to be in because I had Jersey City in my hand, no question. Uh, I would have been appointed the next chief, but I decided to take the chance. And um, so I went down my very first day at the National Fire Academy was a superintendent. I had never been there before. The day I walked on campus, my name was on the doorbell. Hmm. Um, 
And it was weird, you know. Um, and again, prior to my appointment, there had been a series of politically appointed superintendents, acting superintendents. And I don't, I think the longest anyone had been superintendent was one man had been superintendent for four years. Everybody else was two years or less, some in terms of months, three months, four months. So it was kind of a weird experience. Sounds pretty interesting, though. I mean, yeah, it's a tremendous amount of responsibility. I want to share something with you that one day I get this letter in the mail and it says U.S. Fire Administration Office of Deputy Fire Administrator. And I'm not sure what this is, but this is what it says. It says, Chief Escuso, just finished reading your article in Fire Engineering on Mission and Team Development. Terrific work, Frank. Thank you for putting New Jersey on a map once more. And you signed it. And I'll never forget. I mean, this is still hanging up in my office. I'll never forget receiving that thinking, wow, I mean, that, that's so special that you took the time to do that. First of all, it's a handwritten letter, which you don't see much more uh, or, or many of those these days. But this says a lot about you because you're like me. You're an encourager. You're a person who likes to take time to share a positive word with others. and. I know you've done that. You know, you've talked to the wives of firefighters about, um, you know, saying a, a positive word about uh, the men or women that were working with you. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that. You believe in encouragement? Almost in a religious sort of way. Um, it's really um, what I found is the most effective uh, motivator. And while I'm pleased that you still have that note, and I never really expected you to say that, the reality of it is, is that that's the kind of thing that can do more for a person in their career or for an organization in terms of progress than, uh, than anything. So I'll give you a couple of, for instances, um, when I became a battalion chief, I decided that I was going to easily get locked in your office you know, never get out. And I decided that I wouldn't be that kind of officer, that I would always try to get out. So they knew, um, I, I, I guess informally, I don't know how it happened, but that I didn't like liver or cottage cheese. So I would call them up uh, every day. We would work and we worked 24-72. And I'd call them up, say, uh, hey, Cap, uh, what are you guys having for dinner? And um if they didn't want me to come that day, they'd say, oh, chief, we're having liver. So, okay, I'll come another time. If they wanted me to come, they'd say, you know, I have a pasta, we're having lasagna, we're having steak, hamburgers, whatever, whatever uh, which was my signal and their signal to come for dinner. And when I went to dinner, <clears throat> I would never talk about the job. I would always talk about the interpersonal stuff. How's your daughter doing in college? How is she adjusting being away from home? How's your son doing in Little League? How's the new car? Or how's the clunker that he get it fixed again? Whatever the social interactions were, it was never um, it was never about the job. It was always about being social, so that they knew me as a human being. They knew I was I was interested in them, um, as you pointed out. 
when sometimes their wives and kids would come and visit the firehouse. And, and I would always take the kids in the chief's car out for a ride and, you know, blow the siren and the lights and let them play with it and everything. And, uh, make them ring the bell, you know, and tell them it wasn't loud enough. They didn't, what kind of muscles did they have to have to ring the bell loud or whatever it was, um, just to kind of socialize and tell them, of course, how brave, how brave their dad was, who mom was. We didn't have any women in those days, but how brave their dad was and how hard they worked and uh, how much I relied on them for advice and just, but it, it built up a camaraderie in the in the company and the battalion and in the division that um, was second to none. I I would go to fires. They they knew exactly what I wanted. They knew the first engine, second engine, third engine, first ladder, second ladder. And by the time I got there, everything was set up. It was all in place. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful place to be as an organization. Now, with your experience, you've seen a lot of changes in the fire service. I want to take a moment to talk about some challenges and changes, as well as some of the improves. But, for example, I think you also agree with me that not a lot of people enjoy being a fire chief anymore compared to 20 years ago. No. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. Well, um, I think... I shouldn't attribute a behavior or a thought to anyone, but I believe that sometimes people believe that the fire chief is the fire technical expert at City Hall. And in some cases, that fire chief is the fire technical expert. But the reality of it is, is that the fire chief is really a member of the city team to manage the city. And you've got to understand that that you're not the center of the universe, that you're not the most important department in this city, that in terms of budget, you're minuscule. You're 5% of the budget or something, maybe. That um, the big issues of the city are, you know, infrastructure, attracting business and commerce, um, the tax rates, uh, those kinds of things. So um, you almost, as the fire chief, and then, of course, the 5% of the fire department that doesn't perform, the 5% that are the problem children are the only ones that you get to see. Okay, they're the ones coming to your office. The union has a role to play in their defense to make sure that they've gotten all of their rights. And the union president understands when, Somebody isn't performing the way they should or up to par, uh, but they still have to, to defend them. So those are the kinds of things. And at the end of the day, as the fire chief, you almost pray for a fire that you have to go to. And, of course, the deputy chiefs don't want you there because it's their fire. And, you know, even when you were the, when I was a chief, I would never go to to take over. You know, I always go to, you know, pat firefighters on the back and, and captains and chiefs and tell them they're doing a great job and, and make sure that that um, they have whatever they need. Right. And that's funny you mentioned that because I've seen that challenge in departments sometimes where the chief of the department shows up and the deputy chief is saying, now, are they here to take command 
or are they here just to <laughs> watch the show or, yeah. or you know to do what you do and yeah. encourage so yeah there's challenges uh, with resources, with budget, with personnel, and you have to deal with that as a fire chief. And I think sometimes a lot of firefighters, I, probably all the time, firefighters don't understand that the chief is seeing something from a whole different perspective that they may not, because they only oh, see yeah. what they need. This is what I need. But the chief's working for the town, too. You know, and they have to make sure that they're making mm-hmm. people happy on that side, too, so we can continue to get things we need. So it's a, it can be a challenge for sure. And I've never been in that position like you. But well, what about what, some improvement? What I try to help people, yeah. What I try to help people understand is that there's probably no smarter, better parent than someone who doesn't have children. You know, who says, oh, my child will never do that or I would never do that to my child. And then, of course, when they have children, it's all new ball game. Um, when they're 15 or 16 years old and they looking forward to getting their driver's license and they think that they're going to be able to do whatever they want and go wherever they want. And, and all of a sudden they realize that, you know, driving is a pretty big responsibility and it's not. So becoming the chief or actually getting promoted to any rank, your view of it before you have it changes radically once you have the responsibility. So, um, I would just, and I think most officers would agree with me. Most lieutenants and captains would say, Ugh, you know, I was probably the best lieutenant or the best captain when I was a firefighter. <laughs> Once I became one, uh, it was a different story. Dr. Anna, let's talk about some of the improvements in the fire service. Because I, mm-hmm. I see some of these things. Uh, the time that I spent on, I've seen... Uh, a more uh, a greater emphasis on safety. Uh, we're more diverse. Uh, you and I spoke the other day about a lot of the chiefs are more educated now than they were. But what do you see as some of the improves? Probably the biggest global improvement in the entire fire service in the world is that we're changing our role from one of an occupation to one of a profession. And that includes education, it includes training, it includes experience. Um, We are moving from war stories to evidence-based practice. So let me explain the difference. A war story is my experience. For example, I just told you the story of Carlos Negron's unfortunate death. That's Dennis O'Neill's I don't want like that's probably not the right term. It's Dennis O'Neill's experience. That's that's his story, but that's not universal. And um, I mean, I've gone to fires, and so have you, Frank. Where um, you know you're the maybe you're the deputy chief, and two of your battalion chiefs are telling you two different stories. Well, they're telling you a story from their perspective. Mm-hmm. That's a war story. An evidence-based practice says, we're going to take a look at this phenomenon, we're going to watch it, and we're going to observe it, and then we're going to do it again and again and again to see what becomes the truth. The most recent experience that we all have is probably COVID, where in March of 2020, 
uh, our experience with COVID was X. Uh, by April or May or June, and we had learned a little bit more about COVID and maybe how it spread, we knew why. Okay. Now in August, September, October, we're starting to look at the development of a vaccine. We're learning a little bit more. Now we know Z. And that's, that's evidence-based practice. It never reaches perfection. It's constantly tested. So overall, the biggest change, the most positive change is our, our journey from war stories to evidence-based science or evidence-based practice. And um, every profession goes through that. Medicine, law, nursing, engineering, they all kind of go through that. Uh, the second, as you point out, is education, which kind of ties into evidence-based practice. That um, more and more, I had a phone call last week from a friend of mine, retired out of FDNY, and um, they needed some expertise. And I gave him the names of five fire officers with earned doctorates right off the top of my head that I knew that could help him out. I got a call this morning from a fire chief, uh, Chief Niles Ford from Baltimore City, earned doctorate. So, you know, we're seeing better educated officers looking to move that profession forward. And of course, the next biggest change that we've seen is going from a fire-based emergency service to an all-hazards-based emergency service that no matter what happens to you, whether you have a, a windblown sign, a heart attack, a flood, an earthquake, the fire department is the agency of, I call it the agency of first and last resort, that the citizens think of us immediately when there's an emergency. Yeah. You mentioned about science. Science is like a bad word for some firefighters. They don't get it. I mean, it causes <laughs> Like, what do you mean, yeah. science? Yeah. Are you telling me I shouldn't go in a building? <laughs> I shouldn't go into a building. We're just saying yeah. science says. Yeah. What's your take on that, about the conflict? Well, we're in the middle of it, Frank. And, th and that's really what most people don't understand. And if we're going to be a profession, we're going to be constantly in the middle of it. From there's a group, let's call them 10%. I don't know what the number is. But there's 10% of us that are we got to do it the old way. You know, um, this is, I've always done it this way and I'm never going to change. At the other end of that spectrum, there's probably the 10% that are way out at the end of the diving board. They're willing to try anything new, uh, drones or, you know, tractors to put out fires. I, I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then the great majority of us are somewhere in the middle of, um, liking the tradition and uh, hoping for the best in the science. So um, the it's almost like a moving continuum. It just keeps keeps moving. Okay. So the example that sometimes I like to use is that 30 years ago, uh, the treatment for cancer was based on the site specific. There was lung cancer, liver cancer, colon cancer, and the treatments were. Surgery, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Through science, through research, <clears throat> they've learned that the cancers are really 
genetic specific. They're gene one, two, three, four, five. I'm making that up, but and gene one, two, three, four, five can be in your liver or your colon or your brain. And the treatment for gene one, two, three, four, five might be monoclonal antibodies. It might be chemo. It might be radio. It depends. They do a lot of research on what the specific gene is. But I assure you, I assure you that there are still doctors out there saying, I don't care what it is. You're going to get chemo, radiation, and surgery. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for 40 years, and I'm not changing. And I hope you don't get that doctor. I hope you get the one that says, I'm doing a lot of research, and I'm going to do this CRISPR thing on you, which is a gene-modifying uh, technique that they're using now, uh, or introducing a monoclonal antibody, which is actually tr transmitted into the body through a dead AIDS virus, believe it or not. And um, that's what's saving people's lives. That's why people are living longer. So we're a profession. We're becoming a profession. The science is going to change our practice. There will always be the um, traditionalists. I don't want to use bad words here. Um, we got to love them. Um, we probably need them to hold us back a little bit once in a while. They're here for our amusement. And um, but I, I, it will go on. We'll progress. Well, yeah, and I agree with you. We'll always figure out a way we do as firefighters. But I think people need to learn or relearn that we can disagree with each other without hating each other. Oh, yeah. Which is a, a piece that really disturbs me, especially recently with the, the political activities that we've seen. But I, I forgot to tell you this story. I was a very young firefighter in five truck, and I was sent over and transferred to a truck one day. And I was 23 years old. This retired firefighter came in. His name was Rip Gilson. He was 88 years old. The guy was in great shape. He had a good mentality. But Rip Gilson was on a truck when they had horses. Honest to God. And um, he started telling the story about how great the horses were, that they knew where they were going and they had a backup. And I'm 23 years old. I'm looking at this guy saying, man, you are an antique. And I said, Rip, are you kidding me? This truck's got a diesel. All you got to do is go click, click on the Boston switch and vroom, you know, the engine starts and we drive out and we don't have to shovel anything afterwards and there's no smell except diesel. Now, Rip Gilson was, you know, those horses were the best and uh, you couldn't change his mind. So here's to all the Rip Gilsons of the world. And what a great name. So as we come to an end here, and you just talked about you being a young firefighter, what would your message be to young firefighters just entering the fire service? There could be a few things I'd, I'd share. Um, first of all, listen to your mother, hang out with the smart kids. Um, there are a group in your fire department, I'm sure, or a couple of individuals in your department who are going to school, uh, college, getting a degree. Go hang out with them. Go pursue that. If you have opportunities for training, like these seminars or webinars, or going to FDIC or FRI or any of your state association conferences to learn, um, get experience, watch other people, learn what to do, learn what not to do. 
Um, and then, um, you know, get your certifications in, you know, whatever firefighter one, two, three, officer one, two, three, whatever your field is. And then be prepared when an opportunity comes up. Now, that opportunity might be a, pro a promotion. That opportunity might be going to another department. That opportunity might be getting a, you know, president of IBM or something. I don't know. But whatever it is, opportunities will come up, but you have to be prepared before they come up. So if you think you're going to start preparing when the opportunity comes, somebody else is going to get that, that opportunity. And if you look at the research, where they interview people who are at the end of their lives, people in their 80s and 90s, the people in hospice, and they ask them, what do you regret? Most of them never regret what they did. They almost to a person regret what they didn't do or should have done. So take that opportunity. And then when that opportunity comes up and you're prepared, be ready to be uncomfortable. You have to understand, recognize that whatever that job is, whatever that opportunity is, is going to be uncomfortable. And it's going to be tough, but you can do it because you're prepared. Great message. Dr. O'Neill, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, Frank, my email is D-O-N-I-E-A-L at Comcast. Uh, my cell is 717-253-2320. It's 717-253-2320. I'd love to hear from folks. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Let's do it again. Sounds great.